0: Well, right now we are in the midst of working our way through the New Testament book of Hebrews. We're going to be going, um, you know, the chapter divisions in the Bible were made a very long time after it was written, and they're often very wrong in the book of Hebrews. So we're working through kind of half of two chapters here this morning, Um, beginning in chapter four, verse 14. So that's on page 1186. In a Red Pew Bible, if you guys want to turn there, we'll also have the scriptures behind us here. I'm going to go ahead and read our text from this morning. All right, this is a word of the Lord. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son today, I have become your father. And in another place, you are a priest forever, in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions With loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. That is a word of the Lord. So, as we start our time off this morning, what happens to you? I want you to really think about this deeply. What happens when your will, like your internal will or desires, what happens when they're not met? However small it may be, or how large that might be, there's some form of suffering that comes along with it. That's why little children cry, you know, when they want the sucker at a grocery store and you say no and they can't have it and what do they do? They cry, right? Their own internal desire was not met. I remember when I was a kid, very traumatic experience, right? It was Saturday morning. It was a beautiful Saturday morning. I wanted to be in the woods running around doing what stuff does, what kids do in the woods, but I was at some store somewhere with my parents. They drugged me along for what seemed like an eternity, just walking around. I don't know what they were buying, Right, but they drug us there, and we spent like the whole day just walking around stores, right? And after so long at eight, nine years old, you can only handle so much. I'm tired. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. What are we doing here? Why are we here? I complained. I moaned. And like I actually had this like fear later in life when I had my childhood of like, hey, we're going to the store. I was like, it better not be like that one Saturday when we were there for like 24 hours. Right? But other things, harder questions come in different situations along the same kind of topic here. What about God's will for your life? My parents' will was to pull us to where we didn't wanna go, but what about God's will for your life? What if God's will for your life is incompatible with your will for your life? How do you face those times? When things occur, events come about, hard things happen, things that you would never wish on anyone, and it's all he can do to, to just fight, right, those feelings of anger or despair, even hopelessness, hopelessness in those moments when even the most fervent of prayers to God says, Lord, just relief, grace, please, relief, relief, but yet things remain unchanged. As followers of Jesus How do you face such circumstances? Are you equipped to face such circumstances? This whole conversation of God's will in our lives is an extremely challenging, very complex, and it's a very difficult conversation. Uh, Physical ailments and illnesses, sudden car accidents, loved ones going through extraordinarily difficult events, job losses, economy crashing, and so many things that can happen in our life that we feel powerless over. Those kinds of things we feel powerless over. They are out of our control. And the only real thing left that we have when they occur is that question, is this really what God has for me? Like, is this is this his will for my life to go through something like this? And those are the questions we have. And I don't necessarily think that we could say that is God's will that we go through them. And that's maybe a different sermon for a different time. But we're going to look at the way that God uses suffering in this world and in our lives. It's a tricky one, right? Because we are called in Scripture to, to pray for the miraculous, things like healing, Right in, in the book of James, it says, "If somebody's sick in your church, like call the elders together and pray for them that they may be healed." And and sometimes and oftentimes we actually see God do the miraculous, and it's amazing when he when he shows up and our faith is exercised in that way. But there's oftentimes, sometimes, when that doesn't occur, and that's when the the hard questions come. Like, what is he up to? This is hard. What is his will here? How do we understand this? Um, There's a lot of, we have thousands of years of history of of really smart people trying to just think through this and and navigate this very hard question. One of my favorite theologians uh, and and philosophers, uh, Thomas Aquinas, he's this medieval monk in like the 1200-ish time frame. He would say that um, to, to flourish in life, to truly flourish in life is to be living in union, in our union with God through his spirit. That day by day, your will in life matches God's will. That's flourishing. But you would also argue that such union with God is possible even when that extreme difficulties are present in our life. That suffering can be present even while our deep relationship with God is present in our life through his spirit. And that remains unchanged even though those sufferings in our life are present so he would say suffering is not incompatible with flourishing that's what he would say suffering is not incompatible with flourishing but rather sometimes we're gonna look at a lot of scripture that speaks into this sometimes suffering even aids in our flourishing in our knowledge of God and even our our relationship with him That through his spirit, sometimes we cannot even learn apart from suffering. That perhaps our maturity in Christ will be lacking something if it was absent in our life. This passage today really kind of navigates in and out through this very difficult and challenging conversation that's really one of the core kind of central issues. I mean, if people have questions about Christianity and they're not really, you know, in the church, but they kind of are interested or curious, that's one of the big questions. How can a God who is sovereign and good allow such evil present in this world? Like, if I was in control, I would just shut all that down. Like, how can we even understand this? This is one of the core questions that we have of our faith. We're going to be trying to navigate that a little bit this morning. Um, what we're going to see is ultimately how Jesus himself, how he suffered, and how when he became our high priest, you know, is kind of uh, his, his suffering that he experienced in life that makes him just the greatest and best high priest, because um, his suffering was on uh, more scales than just the cross, as we're going to look at this morning. It was moment by moment in his life as he fully submitted himself to the will of God, even when his desires may have been differently because he was a human being, just like you and I. We're gonna see how his suffering and even perfect obedience in this life It's kind of our lifeline of comfort today as we live this, what can be a challenging human life. So, in saying that, let's dive into our verses this morning. This is Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So, in this new section, immediately we're told Jesus is a great high priest. What is a high priest? The high priesthood began many centuries before Christ um, at the foot of Mount Sinai when Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments, came down in chapter 30. Um, Aaron was appointed, who um, was a tribe of Levi, was selected by God from among the tribe to be the high priest. That would be his family that would continue in the office of high priest in the following lineage. Now, Jesus himself was of the tribe of Judah. He was not a Levi or a son of Aaron all of those years later, but nevertheless is called a high priest. In a couple of weeks, we'll go further into that. But this, uh, this moment, this, this passage, in a few moments, we'll, we'll break down what exactly the role was of the high priest. But a few things to notice in the beginning here. It says that Jesus christ the son of god has ascended into heaven some translations if you have a different one says passed through the heavens in other words jesus didn't just kind of go to heaven and stand in one spot the the word the the, the, the original language here kind of speaks of him kind of roaming and filling and passing in and out and through like he's active he's alive he's present he's active in heaven jesus the son of god he's still listening He's still there, kind of bending his ear and observing and be, being our high priest as he passes in and through the heavenly places. And this is a reason to hold firmly to our faith because it says Jesus can empathize. Maybe sympathize can be a good word. Uh, it, it's a difficult word to get into English. Another way we could perhaps say it is he can identify with our weaknesses. How so? Because he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Jesus was a real human being. And this is where we have to kind of, you know, really navigate this. He was an actual human being. He was also God in the flesh. But he was a human being. And as we will see, he was tempted in his human weaknesses. But never gave in. He was, he was without sin. I want to talk about defining what sin is, Okay. There's many ways to kind of define sin. There's a lot of actual Hebrew words in the Old Testament that define sin in many ways. and the New Testament, there's a couple of words used to define it. And there's a similarity in those two words, even though they kind of emphasize different things. But the similarity piece is really sin equals disobedience of God's will. Now, this is what Peter, Jesus really said to Peter that moment that um, Jesus told Peter, Hey, I'm going to go and suffer like i'm the messiah i'm a son of god yes that's me i'm the christ i'm going to go and suffer and peter turned us turned him but pulled him aside and said no you're not gonna die you're the messiah messiahs don't die right and what does jesus say get behind but turning to peter he said get behind me satan you are a hindrance the greek is scandalon you are a hindrance to me For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That word hindrance, scandalon, elsewhere is more often translated sin. So really, Jesus looks at Peter and says, You are a sin to me. You are a sin to me. You are leading me in the opposite direction of God's will for my life, which is to die, which is to suffer for the sins of many. You are leading me there. Your mind is only on the things of the human flesh here, and that's your will. That is not God's will. Do not be a sin to me, Peter. We're about to break down a a lot of this about God's will and our will for our life because Jesus himself had to navigate this throughout all of his life. But he knows as we do that um, uh, what what it really means to, to wrestle with this and that's why he can be our confidence today. That is why even now it says we can approach his throne because he has nothing but grace for us because he, he, when we come to him and our weaknesses, he says, I know, trust me, I know. I had skin and bones. I know what it's like to experience those human weaknesses. Don't be afraid if you fall and stumble to come to me and seek forgiveness. I can empathize. I know what it's like to be human. So hold on to those thoughts. We're gonna move on in verse five here as they define this, this office, this role Jesus has of being our high priest. Verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. That is why he had to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor upon himself, but receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. Uh, Twelve things, just to summarize, will be on the screen behind you. This mention of this high priesthood office—twelve things that describes it. High priests are taken from among humans. On behalf, they represent humans. They represent humans in matters pertaining to God, as like a mediator. They offer gifts and sacrifices for the sins of the people and even their own sins. They deal gently with with the ignorant and wandering. They share the weakness of those whom they represent. They offer gifts for himself. They offer gifts for the people. And they didn't choose that office for themselves. That God appointed them to that office, just like Aaron, the first high priest, was chosen. These were the spiritual leaders of Israel. And it became a very powerful office in the land to hold. They were kind of essentially, in like more kind of, you know, contemporary terms... They were kind of the pastor of the nation, the pastor of all of God's people. They were to shepherd the people, teach them of God's ways, as well as represent them before God. They were to be admired, looked up to, seen as set apart and unique from all the other people in Israel. But regardless, they still weren't perfect leaders, just like our leaders of today, wherever they may be found. No human being will lead perfectly. Just like the, uh, you know, we understand that today, these high priests also often failed. Aaron himself, after being appointed, failed many times very early on, when he first became the high priest. But Jesus was an entirely different sort of priest, one far superior to any human priest. Uh, not that he was he wasn't human like them, but he. He never sinned. It's hard for us to grasp um, a a, a life perfectly lived in the will of God, but he did so. He was never living outside of God's will. Let's continue on here in chapter 5, verse 5. In the same way as what we just read, those 12 things, Christ did not take on himself the glory becoming the high priest, but God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says, in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Just like the fully human high priest, Jesus also did not choose that role. But God the Father appointed Jesus to it. Jesus being the pre-existent one who shared um, in the Godhead for all of eternity, always existing alongside of God. God begot Jesus, or he, he called Jesus to become his son. And this took place when Jesus, who is God, became a human being on Christmas morning and he was chosen to become a very different high priest not as a member of Aaron's family but a whole different lineage a whole different family order and this guy named the sermon for a couple weeks from now we'll get into who that guy was but first I want to look at the point of today is just this very human life of the son of God and how it was lived on earth And now as he exercises this role of high priest, let's look at this in verse seven. It says, during the days of Jesus's life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. To show us that Jesus, who was God, did not prevent himself. I mean, you think if you're God, you could say, you know, I'm gonna become a human, but I'm gonna like, Get, not, not experience all the hard parts of that i'm just going to experience the good parts and kind of just block myself off from the suffering that everybody goes to if that was who jesus was we'd be like uh, i mean yeah he didn't sin but like he didn't he doesn't know what it's like to to be you know to go through what i went through like i'm to he's our messiah okay that's not what he did here jesus was willing perfectly willing to enter into human weaknesses while still retaining 100% of his deity of being God. And it's a mystery. No matter what preacher can tell you how that works, nobody knows. It's one of the mysteries of who Jesus is. Fully God and fully man at the same time. It's a fascinating mystery. But we cannot avoid the fact of how the scripture speaks that he had a human will. And even at times, won't you hear me out on this? Jesus' will, his human will, was even against God's own will, just like it is often for you and I. If you've been in church for some amount of time, you may say like, oh, that sounds controversial. What do you mean? Jesus always desired what God desired. Let's look what happened when he was arrested, before he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he knew the immense suffering that was to come when he knew that he was about to bear the weight of of all the sin of humanity on his own shoulders, and he was in the garden of Gethsemane, let's look at his prayer in Matthew 26 on the screen behind us. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul, my soul, is very sorrowful. Even to death, remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face. You ever prayed that hard? You're falling on your face. We see the weaknesses here. He is exhausted and in fervent, Christ falls on his face and prays saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So you cannot watch with me just one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation, the very temptation of human will versus God's will. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh, the human weakness, the humanity, it's weak. Again for the second time he went and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time saying the same words again. If it be possible, says Jesus, let this cup pass from me, but your will before my own. Three times he prayed such a prayer. With great sorrow, he says, even sorrowful unto death. He needed his friends, his buds, his right-hand guys next to him and that couldn't even stay awake. And he was alone in his sorrowful prayers and cries. None of us in this room has experienced such pressure, right? We just, I've, I've had pressure placed in my life. Many of you have as well. None of us have ever had the pressure of saying, you have to die for the sins of the world and bear the weight of their punishment. That's what he was facing. And not only so, he was going to face the most dreadful way to die, which is crucifixion. A horrible, horrible way of suffering This as a slow and painful death. And he bore the weight of the world, literally, through his nail-pierced hands. Now, Jesus had a human will. The New Testament often refers to this as our human flesh. Our flesh is the birthplace of sin. But for Jesus, it never led to sin for him. He lived fully in the spirit and full submission to God's will, but he still wrestled with his human will. Will. this is how the apostle paul described this battle that lies within us all as it lied also in christ for god this is from romans chapter 8 for god has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and the likeness of sinful flesh not that he was sinful but in the likeness of sinful flesh with all the weaknesses of sinful flesh that you and i have he condemned the sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be filled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of, of the flesh but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on things of the spirit. As Jesus said, the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak and this is a battle. For to set the mind on the flesh is death but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace for the mind that is set on the flesh on your human weaknesses your human desires and your human impulses and so forth is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law indeed it cannot those who are in the flesh cannot please God so Jesus was sent the likeness of sinful flesh meaning he was a real human being but as his own flesh wanted to become a hindrance to God's will he never let it And that's the most remarkable thing about our Lord. It was a real desire within, but he never gave in to it. He always resisted it. And thus doing so, he condemned sin while still being in the flesh by his perfect life. He lived according to the Spirit, but on his own, as we will see in that passage, on his own will, did not want God's will. And he wrestled. Um, Paul says that the will of the flesh is hostile towards God and Jesus had to allow God's will to take over and thus he did. That's why he said, not my will but yours be done. He identifies his own will and says, I'd rather be in the will of God than what my own flesh is craving right now. I'd rather walk in his ways than walk in the ways of what my own flesh is requiring. And the book of Hebrews says that's his reverent submission to God. But hear me out on this one. The sufferings of Christ was more than just that moment at the cross, okay? And this is when Jesus' humanity becomes really evident to us. Listen to verse eight. It's a crazy verse. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Now, if Jesus was sinless and he was perfect, how did Jesus learn obedience? Obedience. How did he learn obedience? How does that work? If you're sinless and perfect, how would you learn to be obedient? Let's go back to kind of the beginning of our sermon. We must note that not a single human being in the history of this world has ever been perfectly shielded from suffering. If I asked all of you in this room, however young or older, what's been a hard moment of just challenging what you could refer to as suffering in your life, I would hear a story from every single one of you whether it be small to the the sniffle cold fever you had a few weeks ago, to some really immense tragedy in your life, suffering on the smallest to largest scale, we all experience it and we all participate in it. Not just physical, emotional suffering, mental anguish is part of what it means to be human. But when sin and its powers entered into this world, that's where all those things came from. It wasn't normally a part of God's world. It wasn't a part of what God designed for this earth. He designed a perfect place of shalom. And it was us who caved in to to, to the temptations of the serpent and the powers of sin, as uh, the other Greek New Testament word refers to it. Uh, the, The sin and its power entered into this world. And now, in our natural state, our flesh is hostile to God. The result of living in a fallen world, being a son and daughter of Adam. And now that we live amongst other people who suffer from the same problem, now that we live in a world full of sufferings and evils and temptations, is there one who could save us from them? Who could stop that? Who could reverse these things somehow? Right? Is there a hope of this? I mean, this is the stuff of what all of our movies are made out of, right? The whole classic good guy versus bad guy scenario, right? You know, however big these, you know, movies these days are so grand, like the world, it's always the world is going to be destroyed and somebody saves the world in like every movie these days. But that's kind of like the, the imaginative like hope of our movies, like is there somebody who could just, here's the evil personified, the worst evil you can imagine, think of whatever story in your mind, you know, ha ha ha, evil, and here's the good guy, and they're gonna save us from evil. Like, there's this buried hope inside of us that is looking for somebody to actually do that. And this is why we're drawn to these movies. This is why these movies make hundreds of millions of dollars because it like scratches this hope inside of us that says, could that really happen? Like, could all the horrors that we see in this world one day be reversed and be stopped? Is this possible? But yet so many people give in to their human will. And as Jesus lived, I want you to understand this, the reason why our hope and our confidence can be light up in him, that he is indeed the one who was to come to begin the reversal reversal of these things. He allowed himself to be weak. And he had to learn, just as you and I do, moment by moment what it's like to submit yourself to the will of God. Moment by moment, he learned obedience. He learned obedience because his life was a moment by moment walking in the perfect obedience of God's will. Now just... A little thought experiment, okay? Imagine your desires and impulses and passions in life, okay? And your hungers, so just think of what those things are. Sometimes if you're following Christ, they are not apart from God's will, and we we, we can train those things to desire God's will. But just imagine that in almost every single case, other case, those impulses or desires are just never given into. This is the stuff of irritability. You ever been irritable before? Like, I'm just really annoyed right now. Usually, it's because some desire impulse in you was not met. You just got really irritated at it. Anybody done that before? Don't raise your hand. Because all your hands would be up, right? We know what that's like on small scales and big scales. Jesus never gave in. He never gave in. I want you to consider a life that was fully lived in God's will. And as he did so, moment by moment, uh, hard things happened. Did you know that when Jesus first started his ministry, he kind of had a quiet life for the first 30 years of his life? It was kind of an unknown you know, carpenter just up in Nazareth. Nobody really knew much about him. But suddenly, he's preaching the kingdom of God is here, and he's healing people. And suddenly, these massive crowds of thousands are just you know, surrounding him and following his every step. Now, imagine he's your brother, okay? And you knew this guy your whole life. And suddenly you're like, you hear, hey, where's, where's my brother? Where's Jesus? Oh, there's like 6,000 people coming with him. He's coming home right now. And we've heard stories about he's preaching that he's like the Christ and the, and the, the kingdom of God is coming. And he's coming home for dinner tonight. But also the 6,000 people are following him. Like, how would you feel? Like, honestly, how would you feel? This is what happened in Mark chapter three. That's the exact scenario of what's going on, okay? He comes home, they're trying to have dinner together as a family and the crowds are like pressing in his house. They can't even eat dinner together. This is what it says. He went home, the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. Think that was hard for Jesus? Right? You're, you're trying to be in God's will and your own family seizes you and the, the, word, the, the power behind the word means they pulled him aside, like away from the crowd and kind of like gave him that eye-to-eye contact and said, dude, you are out of your mind. What are you doing? What are you doing? You ever had family like push you away like that before? That's hard stuff because you love your family. There's a little loss that can take place in your heart thinking like, ah oh, man, following God's will means this. We don't we don't have his response here, but he's a human being. Yeah, you know, I would assume there was a little impulse that says, Man, if this is what it means to follow God, maybe I just like take a step back for a minute and rethink things. But he didn't do that. He pressed forward, regardless of the cost. Regardless of the cost. And in those mysterious places in our life, when your suffering and difficulties are not immediately understood, in that case, maybe he kind of knew what the costs were, but sometimes those difficulties arise and we just don't really seem to understand why. And we, we may pray and we say, Lord, I would love for you to resolve this. Like, please, just remove this. Deliver me from this, right? And we, and we pray and we pray, but things don't change. And, and we, we see some of this in verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears. This probably isn't just a prayer in Gethsemane. This is probably all the other times we found him escaping on the mountain to pray alone. Those are probably tear-filled prayers often. this human weakness saying, like, I've got to press through. Lord, help me. I wanna, I, I'm going to be obedient to you no matter what. Man, being human, is, this is hard. I feel so weak. But, Lord, fill me. Help me go with fervent cries and tears. He cried to the one who could save him from death, verse 7 says. And he was heard because of reverence, his reverence submission. But was he delivered from death? It said he was heard these tears to say lord save me he was heard but how was he heard did god open up a way for his plan of for the forgiveness of sins to be accomplished without jesus dying we saw in gethsemane the answer was no the, the cup had to land in his lap and there was no alternate way how was he heard when we prayed for the deliverance from death well friends he was delivered from death was he not A few days later, what happened that Easter morning? He was delivered from death. That through death, he was delivered from death. That through death, he defeated and rose again. He was saved from death through death. That God used the worst of what this world had to offer for our salvation. And through it all, Jesus learned total and complete obedience in this life. That to the last moment, as he, he was just saying, Oh, Lord, if there's a different way, but your will, your will, not my own. He was truly perfected until the very end, until he breathed his last. And that divine righteousness was the very power that overthrew sin, that overthrew death. And it caused him to become the perfect sacrifice for us. And this is the Jesus who is in the heavens now as our high priest praying for us. You and I, like Christ, need to learn, also need to learn, obedience through our sufferings. That's why this is being written for us. Sufferings in the small ways of unmet desires Sufferings when God doesn't relieve us of sicknesses or trials or difficulties that some for some mysterious reason God is not delivering you from even though we know He has a full power to do so. This is one of the more difficult questions in our lives. I can just read so many scriptures for this. An interesting one, Paul actually refers to childbearing for women as a way that we can that you, you can experience this. First Timothy two fifteen says that women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness with propriety. This isn't eternal salvation, but this is present kind of growth in Christ, present salvation in Christ, present learning in the obedience of what it takes to rear a child. Not just even the birthing event, but having that infant who was just crying all night. Some of you in this room is like, I know, like that's me. Like right now I'm on two hours of sleep and maybe 30 minutes of sleep. I forgot. And you're here this morning. God is working through that to, to grow you and to align you in his will right now that's what he's doing once paul had an ailment some think it was a difficulty with his eyesight we speculate we don't know he prayed he prayed he says lord remove this from me." he called it his thorn in the flesh but god responded with the most difficult words in second corinthians 12 verse 8 it says three times i pleaded with the lord about this that it should leave me the suffering this thorn in his flesh but he said to me god said to him my grace is sufficient for you my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Peter said it this way, First Peter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, his weakness arm yourself with the same way of thinking that whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin why? so as to live for the rest of their time in the flesh human weakness no longer for human passions but for whose will? God's will see I'm not making this stuff up right? God uses suffering to say my will I'm going to weed out your will here This world is broken. One day, there would be no more suffering or pain in this world. That day is coming. But the whole book of Genesis, you know what the message, the whole book of Genesis is? Those very last few verses of a man who was betrayed by his brothers and and great sin was committed against him. And you can read the story. It's one of my favorite stories ever. And as he looked at his brothers who betrayed him, he said, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And that is our greatest hope, friends, that the evil and suffering in this world is not so great as to have the final word that God's power is over sin and evil and suffering in this world, that he can flip Satan's tools in your life around and bring it for your good. And that is the very message of the book of Genesis and that is how Christ lived his life and that is our encouragement today. I wanna to end with a little story and we'll, we'll go to our baptisms here in a moment. I'm gonna read that verse 16 again in Hebrews 4. This is why it says in verse 4, 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy. Don't be afraid of God, in other words. Don't be afraid. If you're here this morning and you're in, you just, there's stuff in your life that's just like, I, I'm in a building right now and God, he might just send a lightning bolt down on this beautiful sunny day, so just be careful. Like, if that's you right now, don't be afraid. Come to him. Plead for his grace, and he has more than enough to give you. And a really powerful story I read this is a man named John Hole. He was a theologian, Cambridge educated theologian. Uh, he was a businessman, became a theologian, um, highly educated man, uh, really smart, intelligent man. But in 1983, at a young age, he became fully blind. And in his book, Evil and the Love of God, it's an intriguing title, he describes a time shortly after he became blind. When he was sitting in a church service, not much different from ours this morning. As the worship music played, he had a radical encounter with God. This is how he tells the story. The thought keeps coming back to me could there be a strange way in which blindness is a dark, paradoxical gift? Does it offer a way of life, a purification? Is it easily like a kind of painful purging? Is it really like a kind of painful purging through a death? If blindness is a gift, it is not one that I would wish on anybody. But as the whole place in my mind were filled with that wonderful music and that Sunday morning service he was standing in, I found myself saying aloud, I accept the gift. I accept the gift. Like Paul, three times pleaded, Right? I was filled with a profound sense of worship. I felt that I was in the very presence of God, that the giver of the gift had drawn near to me in that moment to inspect his handiwork in my life. It was as if he had thrown his cloak of darkness around me initially from a distance, but this moment he had drawn near it is here that whole said he felt some sense that God's presence was lingering in that moment as if waiting to reassure him, saying, I'm here, I'm with you, I've not abandoned you, but Hull, he said that moment ended when he felt this strong feeling in his spirit to tell God. He said, it's all right. I find myself saying to him aloud. There's no need to wait here, God. Go on, you can go now because everything is fine. He did not receive the mercy of healing, but he received the mercy of the power of living in God's will in his weaknesses, as mysterious and difficult as it was. Like Jesus, he learned obedience through his suffering. And friends, this is our invitation today, if this is you. Jesus is our high priest. One more time. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let us pray. Lord, we, uh, I pray now for anyone in this room that just feels uh, this is really hitting home for them right now. Lord, I pray your words would just be alive right now and be active and, and living. And Lord, right now as we call the worship team up and we get ready for our baptisms, Lord, I pray that as your word lingers in our, in our hearts and our spirits. Lord, as we hear these stories and hear these testimonies, Lord, that we're reminded that your, your entrance into our life, that following you does not guarantee everything's gonna be smooth and, and beautiful and, and, and wonderful, Lord. But rather, Lord, you're filling us with your power, a power that was not present before, but the power that is now present the power that gives us full access to you, Jesus, that enables us to walk in your will, obedient to you, Lord, in union with you. We may experience joy regardless of what surrounds us, Lord. We may experience contentment regardless of what surrounds us, Lord. That through our perseverance in life, Lord, the power that you have over death and suffering can be made manifest even in our own life. Lord, as we remain obedient to your will in the midst of such tremendous difficulty. I pray that for this church, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for for not just your example, but your uh, mediation, Lord, praying to us, for us right now, Lord, before God, to God. Thank you for being our our high priest, Lord. We pray this in your name, amen.